we're looking at uh, one of the great passages from the Gospel of John. Let's just uh, pray. Father, we ask, our God, that as we come to your word, that we might listen to you, that we might have our presuppositions challenged by your word, our weaknesses exposed, our sins um, shown to be what they are. And we pray, our God, that we might find here in the reconciliation of Peter with the risen Jesus, Lord, the same reconciliation that we have with you every day because of your completed work on the cross. Help us to understand and apply this passage to our lives today. Amen. It was uh, 1967 and uh, I was finally um, in the zone soccer team. Um, This was, of course, uh, came about because of playing with Meadowbank Boys High uh, in um, soccer on Wednesdays. And uh, we were going to be playing all the other successful zones in Sydney on a Saturday in a round robin. And uh, Mr Gunter had already told me that I was the best right fullback uh, in the zone. Uh, so I was really looking forward to it, and it was to be held at Five Dock. Um, we had several preliminary matches during the day, which we won and we reached the semi-finals. However, as each match went on, I progressively played worse. I was too slow, I was too dispirited as I realised I was playing increasingly badly and uh, some of the wingers were little Lionel Messies uh, in the making. The semi-final came and Mr Gunter asked me if I'd be okay to play, a very wise um, question. Inside of me um, the answer was screaming out, don't play. Let someone else play. Throw in the towel. But needless to say, I said, yeah, I'll be fine. Well, uh, we were walloped uh, 4-2, and two of those goals were really the direct result of my poor defence as right fullback against a very fast uh, winger. Mr Gunter asked me if I wanted a lift home at the end of the day. I desperately wanted a lift home because no one else was going to take me or pick me up. Uh, we didn't have a car. Um, but I couldn't say yes. The embarrassment was awful. Uh, the shame was riveting. And I undertook the long and lonely walk from Five Dock back to Putney. Now, this is just a stupid soccer match. Who cares? And yet the memory of it is riveted in my mind as now I approach 70. I very rarely think about it, but it's there as one of my defining episodes of shame amongst many others. And our passage deals with Peter's shame, deals with the restoration of Jesus um, bringing Peter back into relationship with himself and of usefulness to the church as it's going to evolve. You see, Peter is a bundle of contradictions. There are high points in his character and there are desperately low points in his character as well. When we think of the high points, we think, for example, of uh, Luke 5, uh, 11 and following, where on a similarly unsuccessful night of fishing, 
Jesus uh, tells them to throw the nets out on a particular side of a boat. They pull in, of course, nets teeming with perch or whatever type of fish it was. And Peter realises the authority of Jesus and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In Matthew 14, 22 and following, we read about the disciples being in a gale on the Sea of Galilee. And he realised that if Jesus told them to walk out on the water, he could. And he took those first steps. Mark 8, 27. It is he that realises that Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew 16, 18. He was the rock upon whom Jesus would build his church. So he got his nickname, Rocky. Matthew 14, 29. He claimed that even if all the other disciples betrayed Jesus, he would not. And then, of course, there are the low points. In Matthew 14.30, on that howling gale on the Sea of Galilee, he took his eyes off Jesus as he was walking on the water and started to sink. And Jesus had to yank him out proverbially from the proverbial drink. Matthew 8.33, after realising, of course, that Jesus was the Messiah, then proceed to tell Jesus that he could not, of course, die at Jerusalem. He didn't understand that Jesus was a suffering Messiah of the kind of suffering servant spoken about in Isaiah 53. And then in John 18.10 and Mark 14.72, he denied Jesus three times. And it's not as if this exactly stops when he's restored by Jesus. We read in Acts 10 to 11, for example, how he is very worried about bringing this Gentile Cornelius into the church because it would break all the purity laws. And of course, when the heavies come up from Jerusalem and say to him uh, at um, Antioch, uh, you should not be eating Peter with these unclean Gentiles. He withdraws and, of course, Paul hoes into him in Galatians 2, tearing him to shreds, explaining that he does not really understand justification by faith at all if he acts in that way. So he is a bundle of contradictions, an amazing man, and thank you for those who... Um, made various comments uh, about him. Because of his weaknesses, he's a person that we can identify with. And he's a person who, like us, desperately needed restoration and reassurance. And in fact, if we look carefully at verse 3, you'll notice this fairly innocent um, uh, little phrase that is said there. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. And the Greek has the implication that I'm going out to fish and I'm going to continue to fish. In other words, being a disciple of Jesus is really over for me. The catastrophe of the last few days is just too much. I'm resuming my old profession. And that's how it goes. So here we have a person who is profoundly affected by the betrayal 
and all that ensued out of that, his loss of status, his guilt and so on. He's been exposed and there doesn't seem to be any way out for Peter. We now turn to verses 4 to 9. And here, Jesus reveals himself to Peter. I'm going to ask five questions from our passage. The first question is a semi-humorous one, but an important one anyway. Why are the disciples always such bad fishermen in the Gospels? It's not as if they're not experienced. They're professionals. Zebedee, from whom James and John came, had his own little business and he had hired hands to help him in addition to his sons. So he was a man of some prosperity with his fishing business. That's predicated on the fact that he's continually catching fish. He's a good fisherman and so are the rest, Simon Peter included. So what's the point? We also see in Luke 5 another very similar case to the disciples fishing all night and achieving nothing. Now, of course, that's the nature of fishing, I guess. But John wants us to see something more here. He wants us to see that apart from Jesus, no matter how skilled we are, no matter how clever we are, no matter how experienced we are, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. John 15. Apart from the vine, we can do nothing. So here's our first question. The second question is, why didn't, why didn't the disciples immediately recognise Jesus? Well, of course, it's out of context. They've only had two resurrection appearances so far. They weren't expecting him to turn up on the beach here. All perfectly understood at one level in terms of the narrative and everyday affairs. But also there is something different. The new creation has begun. Jesus wasn't recognised by the disciples at Emmaus until, of course, he has the meal with them there. And then suddenly, as he reveals himself, he's gone, disappears. He, of course, comes into a locked room and stands amongst the disciples, risen. There's something similar about Jesus. He's a historical figure, as he was before, risen from the dead, totally recognisable, the same person. But the resurrection age has begun. There is something new here that's operating. The new creation is just starting to take over and to transform. And Jesus is going to go to the Father and be glorified and established as Lord of all. So the recognition isn't always necessarily immediate. Third question. Why does a carpenter know where the fish are? Depends upon the status of the carpenter. If he's just a carpenter, he's got Buckley's. But if he's the one through whom all creation was made, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1.15, 
If he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1 tells us, then we know that the status of Jesus is divine. He is equal to the Father. He is the one through whom all creation was made. So it should not surprise us at all that he would know exactly where the fish were. In fact, we should expect it, shouldn't we? Fourth question. Why the detail about the 153 fish? Now, I'm sure if you wanted to waste your time working through Bible commentaries on this, they'll give you a whole variety of answers about the symbolic significance of 153. My answer is, there were 153 fish. We are dealing with eyewitness testimony. This is not a symbolic story representing something else. This is a historical event. And they counted the fish, and they also realised that the nets didn't break. Nothing was lost. This is historical verisimilitude. Here we see the authenticity of the Gospel accounts. Finally, who does recognise Jesus? Well, it's obviously Peter, isn't it? I mean, he grabs the net and he yanks it up, of course, the uh, beach in an Arnie Schwarzenegger kind of feat of strength. No, it isn't. Not at all. Perhaps expected to be Peter, but it's not. So who is it? It's the shy guy. It's the quiet guy. It's the retiring person. The one who would eventually write the Gospel of John, but he's the one who leaned against Jesus' breast at the last supper. So here it is, an interesting contradiction, that the loud, bumptious, braggadagio people who are the great leaders of the world are not going to be necessarily the people who recognise Jesus. The people who are quiet, behind the scenes, ordinary, unimpressive, turning up day by day, doing the stuff that no one else is interested in doing. They will be the great ones in the kingdom. That is not to downplay of course, the importance of Peter, we know it's got an extraordinary importance in the early church. But importance is accorded to people of little esteem, of quietness, of retiring personality types. In our world, we don't give much credit to people like that. But the Bible does. Now we look at the great section where Jesus challenges and restores Peter in verses 15 to 23. You'll notice in verses 15, 16 and 17 that Jesus asks the same question three times. Why three times? Well, of course, it's obvious. It's extremely pointed. And the third question deeply hurts Peter. That's brought out in our text because it reminds him 
of the threefold denial. Peter replies three times. Notice in verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice what Peter's saying here. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you. He doesn't say that. What he says is, and it's vital, is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Peter is learning and has learned by this time not to put his trust in his own abilities. Rather, he puts his trust in God's knowledge of him in all his strengths and all his weaknesses and in his abject failures. God knows them all and he is in the grip of God's strong grace. And that is why he can say, I love you, because God knows him. Brothers and sisters, it's exactly the same with us today. We need to know that God's knowledge of us is the source of our strength. Once again, the question is asked. Peter says exactly the same thing in verse 16. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The hurtful third question comes, and again, Peter says, but it's different. Look at it. He said, Lord, you know all things. And here's the same bit. You know that I love you. So I preface it with that little, Lord, you know all things. Because Peter knows the status of the person who knows him. He is the one who knows about the black holes of the universe. He is the one who knows about the multi-universes beyond our universe. And yet he is the one who knows the very hairs of our head. He is the one who knows our strengths and weaknesses. And because of the authority and the power and the omniscience of God and the extraordinary nature of that, he can be confident that God knows him and that therefore his love is real and will, if you'll excuse the pun, not peter out next time. As this questioning and replying scenario unfolds, you'll notice that Peter is commissioned by Jesus. You'll notice that it said, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then he says, take care of my sheep. And then, of course, he says once again, feed the sheep. And you would have recognised, if you thought about it, the difference between the commission that is being given by Jesus to Peter here and the total failure of the shepherds, the leaders of Israel at Ezekiel's time. They fed on the sheep. They neglected the sheep. You read the same thing in Zechariah 12. They're the shepherds of Israel at that time. 
are criticised for being exactly the same. And Peter is to be the exact opposite of that. Peter learnt the question very well, uh, uh, learnt the answer very well, because in 1 Peter 5, he talks to elders this, this way. You are not to be greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, not being, uh, but by being examples to the flock, and what the chief shepherd, um, sorry, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So he learnt that he had to feed the sheep because there is a greater shepherd that is in care of them. Yahweh in the Old Testament and the risen Jesus, his son. However, this commission is not going to be an easy one because in verse 18 you'll notice the cost of discipleship is spelt out. I tell you the truth, when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you wanted and when you're old you'll stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And we know that Peter was crucified in the reign of Nero. Church history tells us that. And we know that he was crucified upside down because he felt that he did not have the worth to be crucified in the same position as Jesus. A remarkable case of humility. And then, of course, you have the final call in verse 19. Then he said to him, follow me. It's a Greek present tense command. And the idea is follow me and keep on following me. It's a continuous thing. Once again, excuse the terrible pun, but Peter will not Peter out. But once again, of course, Peter blows it at the end. And it's his idle curiosity. He says, uh, what about the shy guy uh, at, at the back there, you know, the, this, this shy guy? What's going to happen to him? And, you know, it's a fair enough question. But notice Jesus is so blunt. What is that to you? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? There's an idle curiosity about other believers in Christ that is wrong. I'll say something about that in our applications. So there is our wonderful passage. And we now have to think about how it applies to us. The first thing I want to say is, there is no failure from which we cannot recover personally by God's grace. Whether it is a failed career, whether it is a failed marriage, whether it is a broken relationship with a child or a friend, whether it's that blunder about you're unable to forget or forgive yourself concerning, we might not be able to repair the circumstances, but God can restore us, repair us, and bring us into a new situation where we are no longer crippled by the past. No one was more unlikely to, to succeed 
after his betrayal of Christ and Peter. But now God is the God of the perpetual second chance. And he was able to pick up the pieces and begin again. Second application. No matter how great our skills, without the blessing of a Christ, we will achieve little lasting of value. As we saw, these professional fishermen often caught nothing when Jesus was around, despite their skills. Jesus had to intervene and they had to learn the lesson of total dependence. Now, we very rightly pray for ourselves in areas of weakness, don't we, before God, asking his help with this or that. But we often forget to pray in the areas of our strength. Why? Because we're self-dependent and we're overly confident. So until we learn that our entire fruitfulness is dependent upon the vine and that apart from Christ we can do nothing, no matter how gifted we might be, until we learn that, we'll always be rehearsing old mistakes. Third application. Notice the order. Do you love me? Then feed the sheep. Do you love me? Care for the sheep. I suspect, if we're honest, that we all think we love Jesus and that we can perhaps not love others in the body of Christ as much as we should and that we can overlook their essential needs. Let's be honest. We don't like people who irritate us. We don't like those who are unattractive. We don't like those who are just plain boring. We don't like those who talk too much. We don't like those who talk too loudly. We don't like those who don't meet our expectations. We are jealous of people and we despise people. That's what our hearts are like, if we're honest, before God and in each other. But being a disciple of Jesus leaves us no other option. We love the sheep and seek their welfare no matter who they are. That's what we do. Last of all, don't try and play God in people's lives. God is much better at that than you and me. At times we have to realise that we can be idly curious about other people and their lives. And we forget the fact that their fates are in the hands of Christ. We must resist the temptation to become control freaks in the lives of others. We have to let God disciple them in Christ. So let's get on with our own discipleship. Let's pray for others. Let's take the opportunities of ministry that God gives us, that God provides, and then let us place the discipleship of his people in his hands. He'll use us, of course, but it's God's responsibility to make people grow. Amen.